approximately 140 police officers were injured on January 6th when a violent mob stormed the Capitol. One of those officers was James Blassingame, a 17-year veteran of the Capitol Police. And this is how Mr. Blassingame described that day to PBS NewsHour. You just hear just noise and people running at me uh, as far as I can see from, from the crypt all the way to the north side, center side of the Capitol, just running at us. As bad as it looks on film, believe me, it was much worse. You know, they can stitch together as much footage as they want to, but I'm telling you, and anybody that was in that scrum will tell you, it was much worse in person than anything you're ever going to see on film. Officer Blassingame and another fellow officer became the first members of the Capitol Police Force to sue the person they say is responsible for that attack. Not any of the individual rioters and not the far right groups that helped organize the riot. Those officers sued the man at the very top, Donald Trump, who urged the mob to descend on the Capitol with the hope of overturning a legitimate presidential election. Now, these Capitol Police officers filed civil lawsuits in March of 2021. That was just two months after the attack. But those lawsuits have been languishing in the federal courts for more than two years now. The D.C. Circuit Court heard arguments in those cases nearly a year ago, but that court still has not issued a ruling. According to statistics from the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, which tracks this sort of stuff, The deliberation here has taken nearly three times as long as an average ruling from this court, the D.C. Circuit Court. And that delay matters, not just for those Capitol Police officers seeking accountability here. The extraordinary delay also matters to special counsel Jack Smith and his federal criminal case against Donald Trump. And that is because in both the civil cases brought by those Capitol Police officers and the criminal case brought by Jack Smith, Smith, Trump's lawyers have made essentially the same argument. They are using the same line of defense. They argue that Donald Trump is immune from prosecution. According to their defense, Trump's efforts to overturn the election and rile up the crowd, that those efforts were all somehow part of Trump's official duties as president. And therefore, Trump is immune from any liability, criminal or civil. He should not have to stand trial. Judge Tanya Chutkin is being asked to rule on that very question right now in Jack Smith's federal case. But anything she decides there could be overruled by the judges on the D.C. Circuit Court, the ones deciding the merits of that same argument, Trump's presidential immunity argument, in the Capitol Police officer's civil suit. And so Judge Chutkin is taking her time here. And what some people believe might be an attempt to wait for the D.C. Circuit Court to issue its very long-awaited ruling first. Now, any decision that Trump gets on this from either Judge Chutkin or the D.C. Circuit Court could be appealed. And it could be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And remember, it has to be resolved before Donald Trump goes to trial. But if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, it could delay Trump's federal criminal trial for weeks or even months. So it really matters what the courts do here and how fast they do it. Could they get this all done before the Republican convention this summer? Could they get it done before Election Day? How long do American voters have to wait before they know whether a man who could be nominated or even elected president, before they know whether he is a convicted felon or not? 
So all of that is playing out as we're learning new details about what special counsel Jack Smith has in store for Donald Trump at that criminal trial whenever it starts. ABC News has reporting today about what Vice President Mike Pence has told prosecutors and what he might testify to at trial, that Trump acted recklessly on January 6th, that Pence allegedly told Trump that there was no idea more un-American than the idea that any one person could decide what electoral votes to count. And when recounting a phone call with Donald Trump on Christmas Day 2020, Pence wrote in his book that he told Trump, you know, comma, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome of the election on January 6th. But Pence allegedly told Smith's investigators that the comma, that comma should never have been there. Pence apparently meant to write that he admonished Trump. You know, I don't you know, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome. So potentially damning testimony here from Trump's own former vice president. But the question now is, will a jury get to consider any of it before the 2024 presidential election? Joining me now are Kimberly Atkins store. Boston Globe opinion columnist and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Both are co-hosts of the Sisters in Law podcast. Um, Kimberly, let me first start with you. Uh, The idea of presidential immunity here on its face to the casual observer. And I will put myself in that group. It seems sort of preposterous that Trump's actions in and around January 6th would be part of his official duties. But talk to me about the merits of that line of defense, if you would. Yeah, so Donald Trump and his attorneys would essentially have to make the case that his actions leading up to and on that day were a part of his official duties as president of the United States. They weren't a campaign event. They weren't outside of those duties. It was his job as president when he was speaking at that podium and urging people to go uh encourage the the members of Congress to do what they were doing. He was speaking as president. I am with you. I think there is a reason why he didn't give that message from the White House itself. Uh, It was because it was at clearly a campaign event at best or something outside the realm of the presidency. Keep in mind that privilege does not extend to illegality, right? So if something was, if he was uh, created, engaged in some sort of crime, that could be seen outside of that. If a judge deems that this was a political and not uh, a a part of his duties, that could be outside of that. But because this, like so many things surrounding Donald Trump and the events leading up to and on January 6th are so novel, these are things that have never, that has never happened in our republic before. We need these courts to evaluate it and make these rulings before going forward. And the problem here, as you outlined, these interlocutory appeals could slow the pace of these trials so that they don't happen before the next election. Yeah, I'm going to try and not use the phrase interlocutory appeal, but I absolutely understand what you are talking about. And Joyce, you know, while Kimberly, I think, very rightfully points out that these are novel cases, they're also particularly fraught, right? I mean, any decision here is going to be one for the history books. Do you think that's why the D.C. Circuit Court is taking so very extraordinarily long to issue issue a ruling that could have a serious effect on this federal criminal case? 
Yes, so it's an interesting question, Alex. It's tough to say when we look at the statistics from the administrative office of the courts that these appeals really are taking, you know, what we might characterize as too long. That's because not all appeals are the same. In the D.C. Circuit, here's some very simple appeals from some very basic criminal cases. And it also hears complicated ones from administrative decisions involving agency functions. So from my point of view, the year mark isn't really an excessively long period of time. Might we read into that, that the court is maybe holding all of these opinions to release them together? I suppose that could be the case, but that's not typically how courts would handle this sort of a matter. The civil cases could be decided and the court would make it clear in its opinion that it's setting out the standard for civil cases. And that would leave the issue still to be decided in the criminal context. The defenses are very similar. They overlap to some extent, but they still have very different nuances when they arise in the civil and, and criminal amphitheater. So I suppose I'm not answering your question directly <laughs> other than to say we'll simply have to wait for the courts to do what they're going to do here. They don't give us a lot of advance warning about what their thinking is. Well, I, I mean, again, to the casual observer here, Kimberly, it sort of seems like a game of hot potato. I mean, Judge Shutkin is waiting. This decision has to be made before Trump goes to trial in the federal case. The D.C. Circuit Court is doing whatever it's doing, but it almost feels like no one really wants to hand down the ruling on this. Am I overreading the situation? Yeah, again, Joyce is right. We really don't know. Only the judges in this case yeah. uh, knows for sure, but that could quite possibly be. It could be a combination of all of those things, a busy docket plus this novel question, plus it is a hot potato that will be in the annals of history forevermore. So uh, justice often operates slowly. And in this case, when all of the fraught issues we are talking about are in play, uh, it can be even slower. I just, I guess the, the, the sort of acceptance that justice works its way, so there's a lot of merit to justice working slowly. But there's a case made in the New York Times today that effectively the January 6th trial need, needs its own rocket docket for, I think, reasons a lot of our viewers will understand. I'll read an excerpt for you, Joyce. This is not a proposal for the courts to act in a partisan fashion. The outcome of the legal process is not the point. The point is that the country deserves to know that outcome before it chooses the leader, the next leader of the free world. I mean, the Supreme Court, the court system moved very quickly in Bush v. Gore. Why can it not move expeditiously in this incredibly important, very limited window it has to tell the country whether Donald Trump is guilty or not? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question that we should be asking. And there's no reason that the courts can't move quickly here. What we're waiting on now is for Ch Judge Chutkin to rule on some of these motions that could give rise to what we're not calling tonight an interlocutory appeal. I'll just say an appeal that takes place before the case goes to trial. You know, we let most issues wait until after a criminal case has been resolved. That way, if the defendant is acquitted, you don't have to have an appeal. If the defendant is convicted, he or she can then get their appeal and court resources aren't wasted. But here with these constitutional issues, there will be an appeal before trial. And we've seen appellate courts act very quickly. The 11th Circuit acted swiftly when it was considering the first Trump case in front of Eileen Cannon that involved whether Trump could prevent the Justice Department from using the search, uh, the fruits of the search at Mar-a-Lago in advancing that criminal case. The 11th Circuit acted very rapidly. 
No reason that the 11th Circuit couldn't take a look at these issues, which have been thoroughly briefed in a very prompt manner. And while the Supreme Court has the ability to take the case and hear it, and perhaps they will, they could act quickly or they might be satisfied with the Court of Appeals decision and permit that to stand. So lots of ways for the appellate courts to move this case forward so that a trial can begin on schedule in March if they're of a mind to do that. I wonder if the if and when the trial gets underway, uh, uh, presumably this year, Kimberly, how damaging you think the Pence testimony might be, given what we are learning from that ABC reporting this evening. I mean, is your expectation that he will be called to the stand? Yes, he is going to be one of the most crucial witnesses in this case because he is the highest ranking current or former official uh, who has key evidence directly weighing on what Donald Trump did and said in those days leading up to and on January 6th. I mean, I would have loved if he had testified about this under oath before he wrote it in his book, but he's under oath now, having spoken to the prosecutors uh, and, and already testified in a deposition. So this is crucial evidence that not only did Donald Trump have Mike Pence telling him that this was not a valid avenue to pursue, but that there were lawyers within the administration who were telling him this too. And he made a choice to pick and choose who he listened to. And he listened to the Giuliani's and the Sidney Powell's in his circle, as opposed to even his own vice president. That could cut very deeply into his defense that he was only following lawyers' advice you can't just pick and choose the lawyers, cherry pick the ones who are telling you what you want to hear for that defense to hold. Uh, Kimberly brings up the name Rudy Giuliani, and I would be remiss, Joyce, if I didn't get your opinion on the news today that Fonnie Willis, the DA down in Fulton County, there is reporting that she is prepared to offer plea deals or is uh, left the plea deal door open, if you will, to all the named co-conspirators in that Fulton County case, except... Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Mark Meadows. To some extent, Trump doesn't surprise me, uh, being a name on that list, but I was, in fact, surprised that Giuliani and Meadows are not people she is seeking to turn into prosecution witnesses. Were you? No, not at all. I think she's certainly not looking to hand out deals to them. In a RICO case, there's a lot of advantage to trying the people at the top, the general and the lieutenants together, to get in all of the evidence about the RICO scheme. In some ways, and we've seen Trump already trying to do this with some of the co-defendants who are cooperating, if they are all cooperating against you, then you give that general of a defendant, in this case Trump, the opportunity to say they were doing all of this. I didn't know anything about it. I was, you know, sitting in the Oval Office trying to carry on the nation's business while Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows were freelancing. So by seating them all at the defendant's table together, you really kneecap the ability to do that, and particularly when you've got many of the lower level defendants cooperating. I think Willis has four right now. She's certainly trying to get more of those co-defendants to become cooperating witnesses. They all continue to point the finger at different ones of the defendants. That looks like a good RICO case. <laughs> that RICO case not held up by the same D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or the deliberations of Judge Chutkin on Trump's presidential immunity defense. So we keep our eyes on all of it. Kimberly, Joyce, thank you so much for being here tonight. We have a lot more this thank evening, you. including the world's richest man, Elon Musk, resurrecting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. 
Plus, more hostages freed in the temporary ceasefire in Gaza while negotiators, including a high-ranking American, try to extend that truce. We will talk to former CIA Director John Brennan about the possibility of a more lasting peace. That's next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. On the fifth day of the now extended ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, 12 hostages held captive by Hamas were released, 10 Israelis and two Thai nationals. This video shows some of them crossing out of Gaza into Egypt, including one 17-year-old girl carrying a pet dog. There were no Americans among them, according to the White House. Nine American hostages remain in Gaza. In exchange for today's hostage release, Israel released 30 Palestinians who were being held inside Israeli prisons. According to the Israeli military, the 12 hostages have arrived safely in Israel, where their families eagerly await reunions like this one. The young boy seen here hugging his mother is 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi, an Israeli-French citizen. Eitan was released yesterday, but his father remains captive somewhere inside Gaza. Now, the truce that allowed for these exchanges is set to expire tomorrow night. But tonight, CIA Director William Burns is in Doha, Qatar, for a new round of negotiations that are aimed at freeing more hostages. A diplomat with knowledge of those talks tells NBC News that groups other than women and children are part of those hostage discussions. Joining me now is John Brennan, the former director of the CIA and now an MSNBC national security and intelligence analyst. Director Brennan, thank you for being here. One thing that's struck me as as an interesting uh, sort of facet of all of this is that these negotiations are being led by a representative from Mossad and one from the CIA, of course, in addition to the Qataris. How unusual is that set of um, talks, if you will, between Mossad and the CIA? Well, CIA has had very uh, strong and longstanding ties to Mossad. And so uh, it's not surprising to me that CIA is involved heavily in these discussions because the negotiations with Hamas are taking place through intermediaries. And in this case, it's mostly the Qataris, but also the Egyptians. And the CIA also has contacts and very close relations with the Qataris and Egyptian intelligence. And so therefore, Mossad, being the external intelligence organization of Israel, also 
also has dealings with the Egyptians and the Gutteries. So it's, again, unsurprising that these very sensitive negotiations are taking place in intelligence channels. I think there's great confidence in the players. Uh, Director Bonilla, the head of Mossad, as well as Director Burns, uh, are very close. Uh, and I, I do believe that the progress that has been made over the last five days is a result of hammering out these discussions and the terms of the arrangements. Uh, and the terms of the agreement have been followed through so far. So tomorrow is going to be a very critical day, the sixth day of this truce and the exchange of hostages and prisoners. And I'm confident that uh, Director Burns is doing all he can to extend that truce and to get more of these hostages free. Can I ask you what you would assume that the sort of the next group of hostages might be after all of the women, the remaining women and children have been freed from Hamas custody or custody of other uh, radical groups? Well, I think Hamas is going to keep the uh, Israeli Defense Force personnel. Uh, they're not going to give those up, uh, certainly at this point. Uh, the Israelis have been rather insistent that any extension of the truce involve the release of 10 additional hostages. Now, after the scheduled uh, release of hostages tomorrow, I think the number of hostages will be about 150, 153 or so. So the, the numbers are coming down, which is good. And Hamas may try to draw this truce out and offer fewer hostages for every day that the truce will be extended. Clearly, I think Hamas wants to buy additional time. It is using the time to reposition its forces and I think to prepare for the day after the truce, given that maybe uh, Netanyahu is determined and has said publicly that Israel will relaunch the military campaign. And so uh, I, I do believe that Hamas wants to be able to make as, as much preparation as possible for that eventual day. How significant a challenge is it that nearly a quarter of the hostages that remain in captivity are not actually in Hamas custody? It was difficult. Uh, one of the things that I think has been a positive is that at least Hamas leadership has still retains command and control over the Hamas units that had control of these hostages that have been released so far. But whether or not the Palestine Islamic Jihad and some of the other terrorist organizations in Gaza are going to be willing to give up their hostages uh, to Hamas, that's a real uh, question mark. And uh, there are reports that some of these hostages, including the Israeli military personnel, were traded or sold uh, among these various uh, Gaza militant organizations. So uh, Hamas may be trying to use this period of time to try to gather under their command and control more of these hostages that they can, in fact, uh, trade to the Israelis. I, I got to ask you, because you made note of the fact that Hamas is likely preparing for the day after the truce ends. The administration, the Biden administration, has been encouraging, if not urging, Israel to fight surgically. That is the term um, being reported in, in The New York Times today. What do you think that practically means and how feasible is it, given what we've seen from Israel thus far? Well, the number of Palestinian civilian deaths, you know, in excess of 14,000 or so, really demonstrates that the Israelis have been using rather broad targeting parameters when they engage in these strikes. 
So the question is, um, if they go after a terrorist uh, leader, a Hamas leader or an operative or whatever, and they know where this individual is located, are they willing to uh, strike that target knowing that they're going to kill a dozen, 50 or 100 Palestinian civilians in order to accomplish that strike uh, objective? And so what I'm hoping is happening is that the Biden administration uh, is convinced, has convinced the Israelis to lower that that proportionality uh, number so that there's not going to be these bombings, as the footage shows, against these apartment buildings, these refugee camps and others, where the Israelis might have been successful in killing well, a, a handful or even a dozen of, of uh, Hamas terrorists, but at the same time, they they kill scores of Palestinian civilians as they do that. Clearly, the Israelis know that these civilian deaths will take place when they strike these terrorist targets. So the question is, having the Israelis scale back the scope and the extent of these strikes so that, as you point out, they're much more precise surgical and they're not going to incur the number of civilian deaths that we've seen tragically so far. Yeah, 13,000, uh, according to our latest reporting, uh, and a humanitarian catastrophe over there. John Brennan, former CIA director, such a pleasure having you in the program. Thanks for your time and thoughts. Thanks, Alex. We have lots more ahead tonight. Can the Koch brothers, can the Koch brothers super PAC, I should say, do for Nikki Haley's presidential campaign what it has done for the fossil fuel industry. We are going to talk about the great GOP mega donor push to nominate not Trump. But first, you will not believe what Elon Musk is up to now, or at least you shouldn't believe it. More on that right after the break. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. The richest man on the planet, Elon Musk, flew halfway around the world yesterday. He donned a flak jacket and he got a personal tour of a kibbutz that had been attacked by Hamas in southern Israel, a tour that was led by Prime Minister Netanyahu himself. And Mr. Musk was pretty transparent about why he was there. Shortly after landing in Israel, Musk posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, which he owns. Musk posted, actions speak louder than words. Now, Mr. Musk did not specify which words he was referring to in that post, but this very public display of unity with Israel and with Prime Minister Netanyahu, that comes as Elon Musk is in the hot seat. He is there specifically for endorsing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X, calling the anti-Semitic theory the actual truth. That surprise, surprise, led to a mass exodus of advertisers from the platform, which then appears to have led to this very public Musk apology tour yesterday. 
And you might think, given that he had just flown halfway around the world and toured the site of a massacre to clean up the mess he had made for publicly endorsing a conspiracy theory, you might think Elon Musk would think twice before endorsing another conspiracy theory. But apparently not. Because today, Elon Musk posted a meme pushing a conspiracy theory that is literally the most clear-cut textbook example of why pushing a conspiracy theory is dangerous. Pizzagate. In December of 2016, a 28-year-old man entered the Comet Pizza Parlor in Northwest Washington, D.C., and pulled out a semi-automatic AR-15-style rifle. The staff and patrons at Comet, including children, all fled. But the man, Edgar Welch, who had driven six hours through multiple states to get to this particular pizza place, he stayed inside. He shot the lock off a closet and he moved all the furniture. Edgar Welch was looking for proof that the pizza parlor was actually the, let me check my notes here, the the home base of a child sex trafficking ring run by Hillary Clinton. That conspiracy, known colloquially as Pizzagate, was spread online primarily through fabricated news articles with headlines like FBI Insider, Clinton emails linked to political pedophile sex ring, and it's over. NYPD just raided Hillary's property. What they found will ruin her life. All of that was fake. It has been debunked over and over again. But it still convinced a man to storm a pizza parlor with an AR-15-style rifle. And that history here of fake news leading to a real-world attack, that makes it all the more astounding that the particular Pizzagate conspiracy theory that Elon Musk pushed today was also based on a fake news story. It came from a literally doctored New York Post headline that read, award-winning journalist who debunked Pizzagate pleads guilty in horrific child porn case. Reuters fact-checked this months ago. That headline did not actually ever exist. And Pizzagate has been, again, debunked over and over again. But still, Elon Musk bought into it. A few hours ago, Mr. Musk deleted the Pizzagate post. Maybe this time he's learned his lesson. Or maybe not. Coming up, could dark money save the Republican Party from a Trump nomination? That's next. I have been underestimated in everything I've ever done. And it's a blessing because it makes me scrappy. No one's going to outwork me in this race. No one's going to outsmart me in this race. Today, just seven weeks before the Iowa caucuses, Nikki Haley's scrappy campaign got a major endorsement from Americans for Prosperity Action, a super PAC founded by the conservative billionaire Koch brothers. And the group happens to have a lot of very influential dark money, money that has funded efforts to advance climate change denialism and anti-abortion activism and the National Rifle Association. So its endorsement and its dollars carry some weight in Republican circles. In a memo, the super PAC explained why Nikki Haley, citing internal polling that showed Haley outperforming Trump by 8 to 14 points in a matchup against Joe Biden in key battleground states. But while Nikki Haley may have to may outperform Trump against Biden, before she can even get to that, 
there is Haley against Trump. A recent poll from Morning Consult shows her trailing Donald Trump by 54 points. Joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and host of The Bulwark podcast. Charlie, thank you for being here. First, let me just get your thoughts on how important, how influential the, the Coke dollars can be to a campaign like Nikki Haley's. Well, let's just start off by stipulating that it is still highly unlikely that Nikki Haley is going to be able to defeat Donald Trump. I mean, the 54-point hole is pretty deep. But having said that, this is potentially quite significant because, number one, um, it provides her with uh, a good deal of money. It provides her with the organizational infrastructure that that AFP brings. And also, it is a signal to to other donors uh, that she is the one person, she's going to be the last woman standing against Donald Donald Trump. You know, and as Mrs. Bennett said in Pride and Prejudice, it will throw her in the way of other rich men. Um, so we have been talking about the possibility of the consolidation of the field, that in order to defeat Donald Trump, the field has to consolidate. You can't have eight candidates. You can't have nine candidates. That's what happened in 2016. And now this sends a real signal that this has become a three-person race and is about perhaps to become a two-person race. It's still Donald Trump's to lose, but this is a significant move because the, you know, the Koch network did not have to endorse. They see the same polls you just cited. They understand the dynamic that Donald Trump is likely to win this nomination. And yet they decided to get in right now and put a lot of their credibility and their resources behind this. I um I think the consolidation piece is perhaps what's most interesting in terms of her ability yeah. to do just that. I know I, I was struck by the fact that in announcing their pick uh, uh, to get behind Nikki Haley, the super PAC had what almost sounded like an apology to the DeSantis campaign. I'll read an excerpt. Our thanks, this is as they endorse Nikki Haley, our thanks and appreciation to Governor DeSantis, who has been a tremendous leader for the state of Florida. We understand that some of the governor's supporters, including some who support this super PAC, will be disappointed in our decision. However, as the 2024 primary season heats up, we are entering a time period that demands choices. Um, it almost seems like they're trying to do some of the work for Haley and, and bring DeSantis supporters over. I wonder if you think a DeSantis supporter is someone, and she has risen and taken away some support from DeSantis in the recent weeks, but they are so different as candidates and and seemingly different on some key policy areas. I wonder how, whether you think it's possible for her to bring his 18% of primary voters over to her side of the aisle, as it were. Well, that's the key question, isn't it? Because in order to consolidate, you have to get somehow to to 50 percent. And and that's not going to be easy because a lot of the DeSantis supporters will go to Donald Trump because they think of DeSantis as basically Trumpism with, without Trump. They might as well go with, with, the, with the real thing. But I do think uh, that there is a, a sentiment out there, how big it is uh, among Republicans who say, OK, let's just move on. You know, thank you for your service, Governor DeSantis. Thank you for your service, Donald Trump. But again, what's significant? Significant to me about AFP getting into this, the Koch network, is how urgent they apparently believe it is to stop Donald Trump. And I think that's what I would I would focus on is they see Donald Trump as a real threat to real threat to the nation and not just to the, the causes that they care about, because they've had some real significant differences um, with Nikki Haley on foreign policy. They're kind of a libertarian um, organization, and they have um, gone in a very, very different direction on a variety of 
issues, including aid to Ukraine. But apparently they decided that they're willing to put all of those differences aside because they recognize the urgency of now coalescing behind anyone who can stop Donald Trump. That's a statement. It's an indication that, you know, if you squint just a little bit, you can see maybe what, you know, what what normal Republicans, normal Republicans might do. And that Nikki Haley has now become, you know, the chosen vessel. And she's really been showing a little bit of momentum, uh, I suppose, as much momentum as anyone since that that first debate. And this certainly will not hurt her um, in, in Iowa or New Hampshire or in South Carolina. Yeah. And I think, Charlie, your point about the Kochs um, trying to effectively elect anyone that isn't Donald Trump is is significant. As we get some new reporting tonight, I think CNN got um, early access to the Liz Cheney memoir that is going to be coming mm-hmm. out next week. We are going to have an interview with her, our, our colleague Rachel Maddow, on Monday night. Um, but I, I do wonder whether the, there's an excerpt in the book that I, and I'd love to get your reaction to. The CNN reports that Liz Cheney said George W. Bush sent Cheney a private message of support after she voted to impeach Trump for the January 6th attack. Now, on some level, that's not surprising. But why are Republicans like George W. Bush still withholding their public criticism of Donald Trump? Well, Alex, we've been asking this question for seven or eight years now, right? You know, when are Republicans uh, going to say in public what they have been saying in private? Um, it is striking. I'm going to look look at the, the other side of that. When you think about the number of people from the Trump administration, the people who've worked most closely with him, his former chief of staff, his former attorney general, his former secretary of defense, his former national security advisor, all of whom are now very publicly and openly saying Donald Trump is not fit for office. He is dangerous. We cannot allow him back in the Oval Office. And you wonder whether or not, as this moment of choosing uh, that AFP describes, you know, will will lead them to come out. I mean, Liz, we I think we know what Liz Cheney is going to say, but Liz Cheney is going to be a unique voice to sort of pry some of those Republicans loose because. First of all, she's a Cheney. She's an insider. She is all out of bleeps to give. She has a great deal of <laughs> knowledge of what's been going on, um, both in her experience in, in Republican leadership and in the January 6th committee. And she is going to spend, I'm thinking, the next year um, holding her fellow Republicans' feet to the fire and saying, do you really want to do this? You know, choose honor or dishonor. This is the moment of, of choosing. You know, do you want to go down in history the way that history will remember, say, Mitt Romney? Or do you want to become, you know, just another, you know, another, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham potted plant uh, in, 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 the, in Congress? So, you know, I, I do think Republican, you know, this moment of choice, Republicans have already made their choice. I think that they, this is Donald Trump's party. But what happened today is an indication that there are some folks who have considerable resources who are not just going to roll over. Now, of course, the question is whether that actually matters, whether or not the big money, the dark money, the billionaire donor class money actually matters anymore in the Republican Party. And we're about to find that out over the next few months. Liz Cheney and the Coke Super PAC, moral compasses for today's Republican Party. Here we are. Charlie Sykes, always great to see you. Thanks for joining me tonight. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, the fight to stay alive while pregnant in the state of Texas has reached the state Supreme Court. I will talk to Reproductive Freedom for All's Minnie Timuraju about the 22 women who say Texas lawmakers need to stay out of their operating rooms. That's next.
22 women say Texas's abortion bans have harmed them personally. Some have nearly died, and they began suing the state in March. After hours of detailed testimony, a state district judge partially blocked Texas's heartbeat ban, that law. She ruled that people with specific pregnancy complications or non-viable pregnancies should have abortion access. Texas Attorney General Kent Paxton promptly appealed that ruling, taking the position that Texas law already has a vague medical exception. Today, the state's highest court heard oral arguments. While there is technically a medical exception to the bans, no one knows what it means and the state won't tell us. The court would be saying that a patient needs to have blood or amniotic fluid dripping down their leg before they can come to court. The Texas State Supreme Court is expected to rule in just a few weeks. Joining me now is Minnie Timuraju, president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly known as NARAL Pro-Choice America. Minnie, thank you for being here tonight. I think it's worth noting that there were five plaintiffs in this suit initially, and now there are 22. What does that signal to you about the gravity of this law? Well, first of all, kudos to our friends at the Center for Reproductive Rights, just top-notch litigators running an incredibly impressive program in Texas and beyond. But it definitely says the longer these bans are in place, the more horror stories that are emerging. And as we continue to see uh, the impact of Dobbs across the country, but particularly in places like Texas, where SB8 was in effect before the Dobbs decision, months before the Dobbs decision, the cases are just piling up. And you're seeing more and more brave women coming forward. And thank goodness, because their stories are really helping shift the narrative in the country. But also, they're really critical to pushing back against the Texas uh, legislature's really significant overreach. Yeah, when you talk about shifting the narrative, I mean, many of the women in these cases want to have children. Something happens either with them or with the fetus, and termination is the only option. I wonder how you think that's maybe shifted the traditional political divide on the subject of reproductive freedom. You know, women coming forward and explaining how their very wanted pregnancies went awry, uh, how they almost went to sepsis, how they always almost went to shock, almost died. Uh, Molly Duane's point about having to have amniotic fluid dripping down your leg before the state of Texas considers you uh, eligible as a plaintiff in a case like this. Th- this is so important because what it does is it rips away the, the lies and the disinformation about why folks get abortions, when folks get abortions, and how, how what circumstances they get them in, right? These cases clearly illustrate that abortion is healthcare. They also clearly illustrate why exceptions don't work and how Texas has specifically designed such a vague exception that the state can't even articulate what it means. Doctors have to go to court to get them to explain it. Yeah, it's just made the physician-patient relationship that much more fraught. What is your expectation here as far as what the courts do? You know, this is all about that lower court decision, right? That lower court injunction. I, I know that our friends at CRR feel very strong in their in their suit, uh, in their arguments today. I think we're hopeful that there will be uh, the injunction will be upheld, and there will be uh, there will be further explanation for what these exceptions are supposed to mean. Um, I think what I want to underscore, though, in Texas, these Supreme, this Supreme Court is nine Republicans. The questioning today by the judges was um, definitely not um, 
was not without its own disinformation and bias. These attorneys and these plaintiffs are incredibly compelling, however, and their case is really, really strong. I think what we really have to pivot to at the national level, however, is continuing to fight for federal protections. Because in a place like Texas, you know, CRR is being surgical, the Center for Reproductive Rights in this litigation, but we don't have a chance to go directly to the people in a ballot initiative. This is a gerrymandered, you know, super majority of Republican extremists in the legislature. The best relief for Texas is federal legislation to codify Roe and make a federal right to abortion uh, again in this country. Minnie Timuraju, thank you for your time tonight. I do appreciate it. That is our show for this evening.